Chapter Eight of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Eight, in which David Thring makes a discovery. Standing on the great hanging rock before his cabin, Thring imagined himself absolutely solitary in the center of a wild wilderness. Even the fall place where lived the widow Farwell, although so near, was not visible from this point. But when he began exploring the region about him, now on foot and now on horseback, he discovered it to be really a country of homes. Every mule path branching off into what seemed an inaccessible wild led to some cabin, often set in a hollow on a few acres of rich soil, watered by a never-failing spring, where the forest growth had been cut away to make cultivation possible. Sometimes the little log house would be perched like a lonely eagle's nest on a mere shelf-like ledge jutting out from the mountain wall but always below it or above it, or off at one side, he found the inevitable pocket of rich soil accumulated by the wash of years, where enough corn and cowpeas could be raised for cattle, and cotton and a few sheep to provide material for clothing the family, with a few fowls and pigs to provide their food. Here they lived, those isolated people, in quiet independence and contented poverty craving little and often having less, caring nothing for the great world outside their own environment, looking after each other in times of sickness and trouble, keeping alive the traditions of their forefathers, and clinging to the ancient family feuds and friendships from generation to generation. David soon learnt that they had among themselves their class distinctions, certain among them holding their heads high, in the knowledge of having a self-respecting ancestry, and training their children to reckon themselves no common thrash, however much they deprecated showing the pride that was in them. Many days passed after Frail's departure before David learnt more of the young man's unhappy deed. He had gone down to give the old mother some necessary care, and finding her alone, remained to talk with her. Pleased with her quaint expressions and virile intellect, he led her on to speak of her youth, and one morning, weary of the solitude and silence, she poured out tales of Cassandra's father, and how, after his death, she came to marry farewell. She told of her own mother, and the hard times that fell upon them during the bitter days of the Civil War. The traditions of her family were dear to her and she was well pleased to show this young doctor, who had found the key to her warm yet reserved heart, that she want no common trash, and her chillen want like the runner chillen. Seems like I'm talking a heap too much o' we uns, she said at last. No, no, go on. You say you had no school. How did you learn? You were reading your Bible when I came in. No, there weren't no schools in my day. Not nigh enough for me to go to. Mao she could read and write too, but after poor Jean the army, she had to work right hard and 
had nothing to do with. How he had to chain one side or the other. Some went with the north and some went with the south. They didn't care much. They want no niggers up here to fight over. But them were cruel times when the bushwhackers come searching round and raiding our homes. They were a bad lot. Most of em were deserters from both armies. We once were obliged to hide in the bridge or up the branch. Anywhere we could find a place to creep into. Them were bad times for the women and children left at home. Mao used to save every scrap of paper she could find with printing on it to learn we uns our letters often. One time come long a right decent captain and asked Mao could she get he and his men something to eat. He had nigh about a dozen soggers with him. And Mao she done the best she could. Cooked corn bread and chicken and sich. Can remember how he sot right on the hearth where you're sitting now and tossed flapjacks for the whole crowd. He were right civil when he left and said he'd like to give Mouse a thing, but they hadn't nothing but Confederate money and it wa'n't worth nothing up here. And Mao said, Would he give her the newspaper he had? She see the end of it standing out of his pocket, and he laughed and give it out quick and asked her what did she want with it, and she lowed she could teach me a heap o' readin' out o' that paper. And he laughed again, and said likely, for that it were worth more'n money. All the school and I had were just that thar paper, and that old spelling book you see on the shelf. I can remember how Mao come by that too. Tell me how she came by the spelling book, will you? It war about that time, pow, he never come home again. I can't remember much about my pow. Mao used to say a heap o' times if she only had a spelling book, like she used to learn outen, as she could learn we uns right smart. Well, one day one o' the neighbors told her at he had seed one at the garrets over to other side Lone Pine Creek, nigh about eight mile, I reckon and she lowed she'd get it. So she sent we uns over to Tisley's mill. She were that scared of the gorilla she didn't like leaving we uns home alone. And she walked there and asked could she do something to earn that there book. And old Miss Garrett, she allowed if Maud come Monday following on wash for her, that she mount have it. Them days we uns and the Tisley's were right friendly. They want no fight twixt we uns and tasteless then. But now I reckon there's bound to be blood fade. She spoke very sadly and waited, leaving the tale of the spelling book half told. Why must there be blood fade now? Why can't you go on in the old way? It's frail done it. He and Fernand Slee. They set up stillin' over in dark corner yonder hit to work a heap o' trouble that there i reckon you uns don't have nothing sich where you come from we have things quite as bad so they quarrelled did they yes they quarrelled and they fit no doubt they had been drinking yes i reckon but just a drunken quarrel between those two ought not to affect all the rest 
couldn't you patch it up among you and keep the boy at home? You must need his help on the place. We need him bad air, but he is no way for to make up and write a blood feud. Frail done them mean. He lifted his hand and killed his friend. It war Sunday evening he done hit. They had been having a singing there at the mill and preacher. He war there too. And all were kind and peaceable. And Ferd and Frail, they sought out for their still. Ferd on foot and Frail riding his horse, the one you have now. They used to go that away riding turnabout, one horse with them and one horse keep alas hid nigh the still lest the government men come on em sudden like. Frail he were right cute, he never were come up with. Pierre's like they stopped, for they'd gone fair disputing bout something. Miss Teasley say she heard their voices high and loud, and then she heard the shot right quick, that away and nothing more. And she sent old man Teasley and the preacher out, and the whole houseful followed, and there they found third line shot dead, and frail, he and the horse were gone. Ferd he still held his own gun in his hand tight like he were going to shoot, with the trigger open and his finger on hit. But he never got the chance. Likely if he had, hit would have been him a hiding now, and Frail dead, I reckon so. Thring listened in silence. It made him think of the old tales of the Scottish border. So, in plain words, the young man was a murderer. With deep pity he recalled the haunted look in Frail's eyes and the sadness that trembled around Cassandra's lips as she said, I reckon there is no trouble worse than ours. A thought struck him, and he asked, Do you know what they quarrelled about? He never let on what soul was the fuss. Likely it told Cass, but she's that still. It's right hard to raise a blood feud there when we uns and the Teasley's allus were friends. She took care o' me when my shillin' come, and I took care o' her with hern. Fernand, too, he were like my own, for I nursed him when she had the fever and her milk leafer. Cass were only three weeks old then, and he were nigh on a year, but that little and sickly. He liked to a uh, died if I hadn't took him. She paused and wiped away a tear that trickled down the furrow of her thin cheek. If it were left to us women fair to stir him up, I reckon there wouldn't be no feuds, for it's hard on we uns when we're friendly, and fared like my own boy that away. But perhaps, David spoke musingly, perhaps it was a woman who stirred up the trouble between them. The widow looked a moment with startled glance into his face, then turned her gaze away. I reckon not. There's no woman far or near as I ever earn of frail going with. Still pondering, David rose to go, but quickly resumed his seat and turned her thoughts again to the past. He would not leave her thus sad at heart. Won't you finish telling me about the spelling book? I forget how come it, but Ma didn't leave we children to Teasley's that day. She went to do the washing. Likely Miss Teasley were sick. Anyway, she left us here, 
she baked cornbread it were all we had in the house to eat them days and she fetched water for the day and kivered up the fire then she locked the door and took the key with her and to all we uns did we hear a noise like anybody trying to get in to go up garret and make out like there won't nobody to home there were three of us children i were the oldest we were caswells my family my little brother whitson he were scarcely more'n a baby running round pulling things down on his head where he could reach en cotton were most as much care that reckless she paused and smiled as she recalled the cares of her childhood then wandered on in her slow narration they done a heap of things that day to about drive me plumb crazy and all the time we was thinking we heard men talking or horses tromping outside and keep ourselves right busy running up garret to hide along towards night it come on to snow and then turned to rain a right cold hard rain and we were that cold and hungry and wit he cried for mau and it come dark and we had it all the worth to eat long before so we had no supper and the poor little fellers were that cold and shivering there in the dark i made them climb into bed like they were and kivered them up good and there i lie trained to make out like i were mau getting my arms round both of them to one set wit cried hisself to sleep but cotton he keeps saying he heard men knocking round outside and at last he fell asleep too he alas were a naturally scared kind o' child then i lay there still listening to the rain beat on the roof and thinking would mau ever get back again and listening to hear her working with the lock it were a padlock on the outside and there i must o draft off to sleep that away for i didn't hear nothing no more until i woke up with a soft murmuring sound in my ears and there i seed mau the rain had stopped and it were most day i reckon with the morning moon shining in and falling on her what she knelt by the bed close nigh to me i can see it now that long line of white light streaming across the floor and falling on her making her look like a white ghost spirit and her two hands held up with that there book twixt them i knew it were mau for i'd seed her pray before but i were scared for all that i lay right still and held my breath and heard her thank the lord for caring for weans whilst she were gone and fair lowing her to get that there book i don't guess she knew i seed her for she got up right still and soft like not to wake weans and began to light the fire and make some yarb tea she were that wet and cold i could see her hands shake while she held the match to the lighted stick them days mau made coffee outen burnt cornbread and tea outen dried blackberry leaves and sassafrax root she paused and turned her face toward the open door david thought she had lost somewhat the appearance of age certainly what with the long rest and cassandra's loving care she had no longer the weary haggard look that had struck him when he saw her first following the direction of her gaze he went to the shelf 
and took down the old spelling-book, and turned the leaves, now limp and worn. So this was Cassandra's inheritance, part of it, the inward impulse that would urge to toil all day, then walk miles in rain and darkness through a wilderness, and thank the Lord for the privilege to own this book, not for herself, but for the generations to come. David touched it reverently, glad to know so much of her past, and turned to the old mother for more. "'Have you anything else like this?' Her sharp eyes sparkled as she looked narrowly at him. "'I have something at I ain't never told anybody living a word of, not even Dr. Hoyle, only he wore some different from you. But I'm getting old, and I may as well tell you. Likely with all your learning you can tell me is it any good to Cass. She be that sot on all sect. She fumbled at her throat for a moment, and drew from the bosom of her gown a leather shoelacing, from which dangled an iron key. Slowly she undid the knot, and handed it toward him. I never allow nobody on earth to touch that thar box, and the ain't a soul living knows what's in it. I've been guarding them like they wore gold, for they belong to my old man, the first one, Cassandra's father. But I reckon if I die, there won't nobody see any good in them things. If you'll unlock that thar padlock on that box yonder, you'll find it wrapped in a piece of jingam. My pa's mother spun and wove that jingam. Old Miss Caswell. They don't many do work like that nowadays. They lived right where we are living now. David unlocked the chest and lifted the heavy lid. It's down in the further corner. That's it, I reckon. Just step to the door, will you, and see is they anybody nigh? He went to the door, but saw no one. Only from the shed came an intermittent ratatat. I don't see anyone, but I hear someone pounding. It's only Hoyle making his traps. She sighed, then slowly and tenderly untied the parcel, and placed in his hands two small leather-bound books. Tied to one by a faded silk cord which marked the pages was a thin, worn ring of gold. That ring were his mouse, and when we were married I wore it, but when I took farewell for my old man I never wore it any more, for he load being hit were gold that away we'd ought to sell it. That time I took the lock off the door and put it on that thar box. It were my grandma's box, and I done wore the key here ever since. Can you tell what they be? It's the queerest kind of print I ever see. He used to make out like he could read it. Likely he did, for whatever he said he done. It seemed to her little short of a miracle that anyone could read it. But David soon learnt that her confidence in her first old man was unlimited. "'What's all's in it?' She grew restless while he carefully and silently examined her treasure, the true significance of which she so little knew. Filled with amazement and with a keen pleasure, he took the books to the light. The print was fine, even and clear. "'What's all be they?' she reiterated. Reckon they're no good. 
David smiled. In one way they're all the good in the world, but not for money, you know. Now, I don't guess. Can you read that queer printing? Yes. The letters are Greek, and these books are about a hundred years old. Be they? Then they won't be much good to Cass, I reckon. He sot a heap by them, but I war feared they mount be heathen. Greek, that there be heathen, ain't it? David continued speaking more to himself than to her. They were published in London in 1812. They have been read by someone who knew them well. I can see by these marginal notes. What be they? Her curiosity was eager and intent. They are explanations and comments written here on the margin, see, with a fine pen. His grandpa done that there. What be they about, anyhow? They are very old poems written long before this country was discovered. And that must have been before the revolution. His grandpa fit in that. There is something more in there. I kept it hid for farewell he were bound to melt it up for silver bullets. He allowed them bullets were plump sure to kill. Reckon you can find it? There it is. Her eyes shone as Thring drew out another object, also wrapped in gingham. It's a teapot, I guess, but farewell he got a hold of it and melted off the spout to make his silver bullets. That time I hid all in the box and put on the bolt and lock whilst he were away still in. There is one bullet left, but I reckon Frail has it. David took it from her hand and turned it about. Surely this is a treasure. Here is a coat of arms, but it is so worn I can't make out the emblem. Was this your husband's also? Is there anything else? That's all. Yes, they were hissen. I were plump mad at farewell. I never could get over what he'd done. Also, he mount sure kill somebody. Likely he meant them bullets for the revenue officers, should they come up with him. It would have been a great pity if he had destroyed this mark. I think, I'm not sure, but if it is what I imagine, it is from an old family in Wales. I reckon you're right, for they were Welsh. His paws folks way back. He used to say there won't no name older'n his'n since the Bible. I told him twere time he got a new one if it were that old. But he said he reckoned a name were like whiskey. It needed a right smart o' age to make it worth anything. Thring laid the antique silver pot on the bed beside the old mother's hand and again took up the small volumes. As he held them, a thought flashed through his mind, yet hardly a thought. It was more of an illumination, like a vista suddenly opened through what had seemed an impenetrable, impalpable wall, beyond which lay a joy yet to be, but before unseen. In that instant of time a vision appeared to him of what life might bring, glorified by a tender light as of a red fire seen through a sweet blue obscuring mist, and making thus a halo about the one figure of the vision outlined against it, clear and fine. Bears like you find something right interesting in that book?' 
be you reading it? I find a glorious prophecy. Was your first husband born and raised here as you were? Not on this spot, but he was born and raised like weans here in the mountains, over the other side Pishka. I seed him first when I want more'n seventeen. He come here for, I don't rightly recollect what, only he had been deer-hunting, and come late evening he drapped in. He had lost his dog, and he had a bag of birds, and he asked Mao could she cook him and give him supper, and Mao she took to him right smart. After supper, I remember like it were last evening, he took Grandpa's old fiddle and tuned it up, and sot there and played everything you ever hear. He played like the warbirds singing and rain falling, and like the wind when it goes wailing round the house in the pine tops, soft and sad, like that away. Grandpa's old fiddle. I used to care a heap for it, but one time Farewell got religion, and he took and broke it cause he were feared Frail might learn to play, and it would be a temptation of the devil to him. Well, I say, that was a crime, you know. Yes, sometimes I lie here and say, what all did I marry for welfare anyway? Well, every man has his failings, they say, and for well he sure had hisn. May I keep these books a short time? I will be very careful of them. You know that, or you would not have shown them to me. You take them as long as you like. It ain't like it used to be. Books is easy to come by these days. Too easy, I reckon. Cassandra, she brung a whole basket full of em with her. There they be on that chair behind my spinning wheel. Was the basket full of books? So that's why it was so heavy. Might I have a look at them? Look em over all you want to. She won't care, I reckon. She hain't had a mite o' time since she come home to look at em. But David thought better of it. He would not look in her basket and pry among her treasures without her permission. When is she coming back? He asked, awakened to desire further knowledge of the silent girl's aspirations. Soon, I reckon. She's been a right smart spell longer now than she allowed she'd be. It's old man Irvin. He's been hurted some way. She went over to see could Aunt Sally Carrow go and help Miss Irvin care for him. She's a fool thing, don't know nothing. They sent down for me, but ere I be, so she rode the colt over for Sally. David wrapped and tied the piece of silver as he had found it. As he replaced it in the box, he discovered the pieces of the broken fiddle, loosely tied in a sack, precious relics of a joy that was past. Carefully he locked the box and returned the key, but the books he folded in the strip of gingham and carried away with him. I'll be back tonight or in the morning. If she doesn't return, send Hoyle for me. You mustn't be too long alone. Shall I mend the fire? He threw on another log, then lifted her a little and brought her a glass of cool water, and climbed back to his cabin, walking lightly and swiftly. End of chapter 8 Read by Lars Rolander